welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Disappointment happens when reality doesn't meet expectations. When word spread of John the Baptist, his reality didn't fit expectations of what a prophet should be. When Jesus came, his reality didn't fit expectations of what Messiah would be. What expectations do you bring, and how have they matched up against reality? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled, What Then Did You Go Out to See?, which covers Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning. Good to be with you again um, this year. My name is David McNeely on staff here, pastor of Young Adults. And um, I've told you this every year, and uh, I won't belabor the point because you've heard me explain it before, but this really is my favorite week of the year. And there's a lot of reasons uh, for that, but probably the driving reason is that you have to make a special effort to be here with all that's going on in your lives around this time of year. Um, you actually have to make an effort to get out of bed and to make your way over here on Sunday morning. So it just goes to prove how godly you are and how ungodly all the pagans are that are not here. I, one of the reasons I love this one, too, is uh, when Garrett and I were talking about this particular week, we said, we're going to have this band um, up here. And uh, he mentioned it earlier, but man, um, I am so excited about what is going on in our college ministry. Tyler Beggs is the guy that grew up here in this church, and he's come back on staff with us. He heads up our initiative to go after college students. But um, in the summertime, we just go after a very simple meeting, and it meets on Tuesday nights. And we join in with Camp All-America and some others, and there is a truckload of college students that gather up here most of the time in the chapel, sometimes over in the hangar as well. And uh, it, it is so much fun to watch college students spur one another on towards love and good deeds. About a decade ago, I started to lose some of my cynicism towards the future of the church. And that was because of what I am seeing happening on college campuses all across America. I don't know how much you read. I don't know how much doomsday you have in your mind about the future of the church. And, but I'm telling you, the church is moving in a really good direction. Let me just tell you this. The evangelical church, meaning the church that says that Jesus is the only means of salvation, that believes the essentials, the big rocks, there's many little things that we can disagree on that don't have near the significance of importance as the major issues. Those big rocks there um, that we agree, we're going to call that the evangelical church. The evangelical church in America is growing. It is becoming larger. Now, the church at large is shrinking in America in terms of the pure numbers of churches, but here's what it means. Liberal churches that don't preach Jesus are going away. Hallelujah. Churches that preach Jesus are growing. Absolutely. Feel free to clap. Yeah. I learned from my father years ago that uh, there's, um, they're called imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. And there are Psalms that you read, you go, whoa, wow, that's harsh. He's praying that on those people like, Lord, break the jawbone of the wicked. Things like that. You know, that you, you don't read typically in your family devotions out there. <laughs> I, things like that. I learned, my dad said, um, pray these type of prayers for the church that has become apostate, for the church that has abandoned the central message of Jesus. Pray that God would bring them to a point of repentance. That's what we want to pray. But if he won't, if the church won't repent, then pray that God would remove them from a place of influence. And I'm telling you what's happening in America is this. The liberal church is being moved away from a place of influence. 
And it is getting darker and darker and darker in America. And that little light is beginning to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. And it's happening on the college campus right now. Liberal universities all across America, you're finding college ministries that are booming and thriving. And they are preaching the foolishness of the cross. And people are embracing this message, seeing the hope that is giving it, seeing the hopelessness in life that is outside of a life that Jesus offers and the hope of what Jesus does bring to the table. It is so encouraging to me. And so every Tuesday night, I feel like a kid in a candy shop in the summer. I get to go and hang out with students that are coming in for a little while and they're going back out to their campuses. And I pray for every one of them. I pray that God would use them mightily on their campus. Just join in on what God is doing over there. So today, if you're wondering where the church is headed, have hope. Not because of what's happening on the college campus in America, but because Jesus hasn't left his throne. Never been a moment in which he said, I don't know what's going on. You know, I probably better get back on the seat here. I probably better get back in charge. I mean, I was away from it, but now Jesus said he promised to us, not even the gates of Hades are going to prevail. So he's moving forward. I just want to join him in on that mission. All right, now, that's not what I'm preaching on. Whew, sorry. Uh, last little bit before we uh, dig into this. Um, you may know this. For those of you who are not a part of this church on a regular basis, um, you, you don't know anything about me. That's okay. Uh, for those of you who are around, you know that the McNeely family is somewhat addicted to adoption. We are rather fond of this notion of adoption, and uh, if we had a larger house and a bus, we would keep going in terms of all the children we bring in, but we've always been open to saying, hey, we, we would, we're open. You know, at any point, if the Lord wants to do something great, and so this year, there's a new addition to the McNeely family. We've been longing for a little girl, and so here is our little girl. You know, what's interesting is that uh, Charlie is her name, and, and no joke, I'm not, you can't make this stuff up. Charlie, wherever Judith goes, she's just kind of following her around. She just knows she's the only female in the whole house, the only one that makes sense and stuff like that. So she's got the, the deed there for uh... All right, now, so I've said no for years to a dog because I've got six boys. Who's going to take care of a dog with that crowd? Said no to it, and they finally reached the age. I said, all right, I think we can do it. We can pull it off. It'd be good for their maturity, growth, and development. And, uh, and so I'm not going to do jack squat. They're going to be the ones that uh, take care of it. We've had this dog for all of two days now. And my little Wyatt, the, young, the youngest child, little Wyatt, comes to me and he says, Dad, I didn't know it was going to be so much work having a dog. Because they're the ones that are cleaning up everything right now. Okay, on the way home, bringing the dog home, the dog vomited all in our front seat, had to pull the thing, had to pull off to QT on Christmas Day. Thank God QT is open on Christmas Day. To be in order to clean this thing out, the dog pees, of course, in the car. We get home. So now we, I'm, it's just a matter of time before some trainer, I don't know who they are. If you're a dog trainer, please talk to me after the service. Somebody's getting a call and we're going to have that dog trained before too long and all the boys, it's going to happen while the break is on because I want them to see what to do and so they can, they. my kids had this expectation that we would bring in this little dog and this dog would be fully trained, 
wagging the tail every time they woke up, just looking longingly into their eyes, coming when they said come, jumping when they said jump, all of these things, not realizing how much work was going on. And so Wyatt voiced for all of them what they're thinking. They have an unmet expectation. They're expecting one thing, and they've gotten themselves a whole nother thing. Now, it's going to be a blast. I can't wait. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but they have unmet expectations. Is it not true that in our lives, unmet expectations oftentimes do a serious number on our minds and on our hearts? Unmet expectations for a dog and being trained, that's, you know, relatively simple. But how about your marriage? There have been unmet expectations in your marriage. Did you enter into this thing thinking that he was going to wake up every morning figuring out new and creative ways to tell you how much he loved you, how much he was thinking about you? That creative date that he planned, you know, Thursday night and then the new one again on Friday night. And then on Sunday, how he woke up and to make you breakfast in bed. Are, are you think? and then you woke up and realized, no, nah, he's a dude. <laughs> and none of that's going to happen ever. Do you have expectations at your job? You were interviewed, and in that process, the boss said all the right things, and you knew that you were going to be able to use your skills and your passions and do what it is that you long to do and add value to the company, the organization. And now that you've been in it for six months, you're realizing that you're doing far more menial tasks than you ever dreamed you would. You're just another person on the team, and you're functioning not out of your strengths and passion, but you're actually functioning out of an area that perhaps is even a weakness. You got un- unmet expectations and friendships? Or you thought that they would stand by you? And when life got really difficult and hard and, and you called out and you reached out to them and they did not return, they did not come and stand near, they did not give you their presence like you knew you would do for them, but they didn't do for you. You got unmet expectations in your school? Perhaps you went off in the fall thinking it was going to be the greatest experience since sliced bread and you just knew that this was the major you wanted to be in and you're going to have this great experience. You got there and realized, holy cow, this is hard. School is difficult and I don't have a whole lot of friends. I'm actually a nobody in a huge pond now. Yet unmet expectations with your children thinking that it would look one way and that they would go this way and that you would form and fashion and mold and train and develop and they're nowhere close to walking with the Lord. They're nowhere close to what you had hoped for and dreamed of for them. We could go on and on. Unmet expectations oftentimes do a serious number on our minds and our hearts. Last one. How about unmet spiritual expectations. When you began this journey with God and you threw your hands up in the air and you surrendered the controls of your life over and you just knew that he was going to make your life far better than it was. You knew that your marriage may have come back together, that job may have improved, you knew that school would work itself out, you knew that friendships would come along, you're getting involved with this new thing called the church, and so they're going to be there for you, and, and how is it going on your spiritual expectations? Do you think you're going to wake up and open that Bible 
and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm here to meet with you. And so you open it up and you open up to the Psalms and you begin reading and you, you don't even know what it's saying. And it sure doesn't feel like he has plopped himself right down beside you. And the, it doesn't feel like the Holy Spirit is guiding you along and teaching like your first grade teacher would. How are your spiritual expectations going? And here's the challenge for us. Whenever we face an unmet expectation, we have two places that we can go to. We can either force something to happen, we can demand our way, or we can embrace what is here. If we force something, if we demand our way, oftentimes we cannot control, manipulate, change, etc. enough to ever be satisfied in our souls. But if we will embrace the reality of what God has brought about and trust him with that, then I really believe that something of deep significance can happen in your soul. Let me say it this way. This really will never give you what you long for. It will give you what you want, but it'll never really give you what you long for. This right here is what your soul is longing for. Give your Bibles open with me to Matthew chapter 11. In this chapter, we're going to be looking at an interaction that Jesus has with John, although they're in different places. They're sending messages to one another, and then Jesus is going to interact with the crowd. And all along, what's happening in this passage in Matthew 11 is Jesus is dealing with people's unmet expectations. They were thinking one thing was going to happen, and yet the Lord brought about something that was radically different. Now, I want you to keep this in the backdrop of your mind all along. And I wrote this down, uh, this, faith increases when Jesus, not an outcome, is the object of faith. Faith increases when Jesus, rather than an outcome or not an outcome, is the object of faith. In other words, if you're hoping for a specific outcome to take place, your faith is never really going to grow. Our faith grows when a person becomes the object of our faith. When we reach the place that says, I don't have to have this anymore. I choose to trust you. And the Lord grows this. Matthew 11, begin reading with me in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus had finished instructing the 12, and it says that John hears about this. When John hears all about what Jesus was teaching, that term is inclusive and it means not just simply the the message that Jesus had, but also his deeds included as well. Now, if you recall, 
Matthew builds this rather intentionally for us. So we have the birth narratives right at the beginning of the book of Matthew, and we learn a lot about what took place from the birth of Jesus up to the second year of his life. When the edict was given and the order was cast out so that all the children, two male children, two and under, would be killed in the process. After Herod dies and Jesus makes his way along with his parents as they take him after hearing a vision from an angel, they go into a certain region, they make a home. And in Matthew chapter 3, there's this introduction, if you will, to Jesus' ministry. Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, Matthew lets us know that there's this guy, this crazed dude, who dresses really weird, his hair is unkempt, he lives out in the wilderness, he eats locusts and things, just a bizarre human being. He's got this ministry going on, and people are coming out to hang out with him and to come and hear from him. And Jesus shows up, and he tells him, he says, you need to baptize me. And he's a little reticent at first, but then he finally gives in. Now, who was this person? His name is John. He's John the Baptist. Not the John who wrote the gospel of John. Not that disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a different John there. This is John the Baptist. This is a relative of Jesus, which leads me to believe that Jesus and John likely had some sort of conversation and relationship as time went on. Scripture doesn't tell us that, so that's thus saith David, and I could be dead wrong. But I just imagine, knowing how relationships worked, especially in this day and age, and how familial they were, they I imagine that he and Jesus hung out and talked about things. And he knew Jesus' character. And he knew that there was never a time that he could remember in which Jesus did something wrong. So Jesus comes to him and he says, baptize me. Me? Baptize you? He was probably going back in his mind and thinking about maybe what his mother had shared with him about the time that they first uh, met when the two of them were actually inside the womb of their respective mothers. And John, when he was in the side of the womb of his mother, senses that Jesus is near and the Holy Spirit comes over John. He actually leaps inside of his mother's womb. He's going, yes! The precursor for what the whole world will one day do. Yes! And, And... John is thinking, I I can't help but imagine this, he's thinking about the history of their relationship and he knows that his role was given specifically to prepare the way for the special one. And he has a pretty good idea that special one is Jesus. So Jesus says, baptize me. He baptizes him. And then when he's coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends down from the sky like a dove. He rests on Jesus himself. And then the voice of God booms from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Father, son, and Holy Spirit are all right there in the presence of John the Baptist. If he thought anything other than this dude is something special, then he was on crack. He knew. He was convinced He was assured, and so he went about his ministry. He's going about his ministry saying, repent, for the kingdom is near. And so he hears about what Jesus is doing. He hears about it because he's actually in prison. John was the guy who spoke boldly to others. He actually shared a message with a dude that was high up in power. He said, you should not be with her. It's against the will of God. And it got him landed in jail. And he's been in jail for a long time. And so word comes to him about what Jesus is doing. And while he's in jail, I can't help but think he was thinking, Jesus is going to get me out. 
and we're going to go establish this kingdom. I'm going to work underneath him. He's far more important than I am. In fact, I can't even, I'm not even worth the sandals. I mean, the thongs on his sandals. I, he knows that Jesus is here and he's here, but I can't help but think he's thinking Jesus is going to restore it to the glory that we once had. And so he hears that Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And he has this greatest sermon that's ever preached in Matthew 5 through 7. And then 8 through 10 is all these miracles and training of the 12, etc. And there's no judgment yet that's taking place. And he's in prison. And so he sends word to Jesus. Are you really the one? Or is somebody else coming? Now, we might be tempted to think, oh, this man of this great faith, this guy who would say anything to anybody because it was the truth. He would stand firm on his conviction. He would not give in. And now he's beginning to wilt in doubt. Must not be a great man. Must not really have faith, huh? Not at all, according to to the scriptures here. This is the difference I want you to see. In verses 16 through 19, later on, don't look at it yet, we're going to see a rebuke that Jesus is going to give to people for having unbelief. The refusal to act on what it is they know. This right here that John is dealing with is something different. There's a difference between having um, uh, uh, unanswered questions. There's a difference in having doubt and having unbelief. Doubt is, I'm just not sure. I don't understand I'm confused. I'm not sure what to do. Unbelief is, I hear you. But since I don't have all the answers, I'm not going to move forward at all. What I love is is that John is thinking over here in this place of confusion in the prison. Is it really Jesus? He knows the prophecies that were given. He knows that Jesus should be doing all these things, but he doesn't see judgment yet. And so he's wondering, but what does John do? He sends word. He does everything within his power to get into the presence of God and say, I'm struggling. Is it you? If it's not you, please tell me so I can go somewhere else because I know that the Lord is faithful. He is coming to God in the midst of his doubt. He is bringing his questions into the presence of God. That is huge faith. Are you sure, Lord? that you wanted me to be in this place in marriage? Are are you sure that you brought me towards this particular job? I'm confused. I sure thought that you were leading me here. It felt like it. I had such a peace about it. But now, Lord, it doesn't seem like I'm here doing anything that I wanted to do. God, this school... I sure thought that this was the major that I wanted to get into, but I'm here and God, I, I got no friends. I got, is this what you want? Did I miss it? God, I have no friends. I am confused as to why you would lead me to this particular church at this particular time. And yet it seems no one is gathering around me and us. God, did I miss it? This is healthy. What is a death sentence is to remain over here? I don't know. 
Is God real? Is he not real? I'm not real sure. I don't know what to do here. I know I should probably go to him, but I can't because I'm just so confused and hurt. I don't know what to do. This right here will kill you. This will give you life. Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And he lists six things here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news that is preached to them. He is citing here specific passages in Isaiah. He goes from Isaiah 26, 29, 35, 42, all the way to 61. He is telling what Isaiah has prophesied. He's saying, yes, I'm the guy. But the thing that Jesus leaves out is the exact thing John was looking for. He leaves out all of the judgment. I'm not coming in to judge quite yet. Because his first trip to the world was not to bring condemnation to the world. It was actually to save the world. See, when the angel had showed up to Joseph, he told Joseph, this is what his name's going to be. Because he is going to save people from their sins. Not from political oppression yet. Not from undesirable circumstances yet. He's going to save people from their sins. And Jesus is coming in. And he's doing all the signs that would point to him as being the man. But he's not bringing judgment yet. At this point, John has a choice. Is he going to choose to have childlike faith or is he going to choose to have childish faith? Jesus is calling us to have a childlike faith. A childlike faith is God centered, it is purpose driven, it is kingdom focused. A childlike faith says this, I'll trust you even without the answers. And it says this as well, I'll follow you even though I may not like the outcome. That's what a childlike faith does because a childlike faith says, I'm going to reach up, grab the hand of the guy who is bigger and stronger and wherever he leads, I'll go as long as I'm with him. A childish faith, on the other hand, is different. Childish faith is not God-centered. It is actually man-centered. It is outcome-oriented, and it is self-serving. A childish faith says, I must have answers in order to trust you. And it says, I must get my way in order to follow you. Childish is the question that's in front of him now as a choice. As they went away, meaning the disciples of John went away to go talk to him, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the crowds probably thought that John was wiltering in the process. They thought that John may have been someone who was faltering in his faith. And Jesus now goes on defense of John. He wants to let the crowd know that's not who he is at all. And he defends him in a very interesting way. What did you come out to see? Why did you you make your way all this distance out here to where this crazed man was? Did you come out because you thought you would see a reed blowing in the wind, meaning that this is kind of guy that just oscillates between that which is true and what is not, and he'll say anything at any time based on the popular opinion of the day? It's a sarcastic question from Jesus. It's a rhetorical question. Everybody knows the answer. No, of course you didn't come out to see that. You came out to see the guy who would stand firm, Did you come out to see a guy who would dress nicely? Did you come out to see a show? Someone who sounded great, who would tickle your ears? Someone who could bow to the wishes of the elite that when the wealthy came on, they said, say this, that he would say this? No, you didn't come there. You came out to look at a man who dressed odd, who did not rely upon the gifts of others, the man who just trusted the Lord. And if you asked him to compromise, he would not do it. Now look at the irony. He says, those type of people are found in the king's palace. And that's exactly where John was. He was in the palace because he had stood up against the royalty. The last question, same question, but he asked it the third time. It's not a sarcastic one this time. And it's not meant to be taken in the negative. It's meant to be taken in the affirmative. He says, what then did you come out to see? A prophet? Yeah. You came out to see someone who would speak the words of God to the people. God said this and he would simply deliver that. You came out there because that is what your soul is so deeply longing for. Your soul is not longing to be tickled. You don't want your ears to be tickled. You don't want somebody to say whatever it is that you want to be said. You may want that for the short term to feel better about yourself, but your soul long term is longing to hear from the voice of God. And that's what you got. I'm telling you, he's more than a prophet. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? He's more than a prophet. Three things that he tells us, three reasons why he's even more than a prophet. In verse 10, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He is quoting from Malachi here. He's talking about the prophet who would come, who would prepare the way for the anointed one of God. He says this meaning that that, that John was the greatest one at this point, meaning he had all the information. Every prophet before that, come all the way back over here. Moses had a little bit of the picture, but he didn't have all the picture. And then you get over here, or David has a little bit more of the picture over here. And then finally, we get to the end, and John has the most amount of information. He's the one that delivers the most amount to the people, but not even John has the fullest picture yet. He's the one who is to prepare the way he would be greater is what he says there in verse 11. Among those born, there's not one greater than John the Baptist. And look at what he says, yet. He who is the least in the kingdom is greater than him, meaning this, you and me. 
have a greater understanding than even John did at the time because John got his head chopped off before he got to see the risen Savior. We have more information. And with more information comes more responsibility. Doubt would be looking at this information saying, ah, I I just, I don't know, I'm confused. Unbelief would be, I see it, not good enough. The third reason why he is greater or he's better is verse 14. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He's actually quoting once again from Malachi, a different section of it, saying that he is the Elijah that was to come. There was debate amongst the theologians. Does this mean that this would be Elijah literally coming back in the flesh and blood? John had denied that earlier. That's not me. I'm not that guy, yet he knows that he was the guy that was sent in the spirit of Elijah to live a similar lifestyle and to accomplish something to prepare the way for Jesus specifically. Jesus comes to the defense of John the Baptist. Now, he says something in verse 12 real quickly. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. While I was in seminary, I took a class, of course, on uh, Greek. And uh, during this Greek class, you know that you're going to have to write a paper at the end of this study. And it's going to have to be on a particular passage. And there's a whole lot that you have to do with it. And it's rather intimidating. And so I knew the passage that I wanted to get was this particular passage right here. This one verse in Matthew that talks about the violence and those who suffer it. And I'd heard a guy talk about it years ago, and I'd heard how difficult it is to interpret and to translate, et cetera. And so I, I thought, you know what? I'm brilliant. And so I'm going to do what no man has ever done. I'm going to figure this passage out, and I'm going to write a paper that's going to be published. And so I spent one month studying this thing with every resource I knew to gather and gathering in. And at the end of that month, I realized I'm no further along in my understanding of this than the day that I started. It is so difficult. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, but, but please hear this. Just because it's difficult to translate and understand the exact meaning does not mean that we cannot with great confidence and assurance know what he's saying. Here's in essence what he's saying. There is violence associated with the kingdom of God. If you are looking for a cush life, if you're looking for a better life, if you're looking to come and add something of value on so that you can get boosted up and become a better salesman and become a better husband and become a better listener and you can do all of these things to become a better human being, do not choose Christianity. Because in Christianity, violence is associated with it. The evil one hates Jesus. He doesn't really care about you at all. The fact that you are associated with Jesus makes him hate you. But it's not really about you. It's about the fact that you're associated with Jesus. So he will do everything within his power to bring on violence and destruction and death. He will do everything to to intimidate, to growl, to snarl. He will do everything to devour you. That's Christianity. From the beginning to the end, there will be violence. And Jesus says, stand firm. I will be with you until the very end of the age. I will not leave you nor forsake you. They cannot do anything to you they haven't already done to me. 
close real quickly with this last section. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's talking about children, and he's going back now to the childish faith, that these children simply did not get their way. I'm convinced that what he's talking about here is this, that in a a wedding party in this culture, the men would get up and they would celebrate and they would dance. It would be a great celebration. And at a funeral, the women were the leaders in terms of crying and mourning and wailing. And so it's the little children say, we're going to play this game. Let's play a wedding. And so they would put on this wedding and the other other girls are going, this is stupid. This is dumb. And they say, well, let's do a funeral then. And, you know, you'd be the dead body and you'd be all this. That's dumb. dumb. They were never satisfied. It was never enough. Jesus says, John came, and John denied himself so that he could stay focused in on the kingdom, and you guys said about him, he's got a demon. That's not enough for you. I'm coming along. I'm enjoying life. I am showing appropriately what it looks like to enjoy all that God has given to us, and you say, too loose. You're never, it doesn't, whatever the reason is, you're going to find a reason to reject the kingdom of God coming to you now. It is your flat out refusal to embrace with faith. So he rebukes their unbelief. My friends, today I want to ask you, what did you come out to see? Let's just start with this morning. What did you come here to see? Did you come hoping that you would see this guy named Randy Pope who would get up and teach and preach because you've heard about him from all over? I'm so sorry you had to deal with me. But I sure hope that was not your reason for coming. Why do you show up to Passion City Church? Is it to hear from Louis Giglio? One of my favorite preachers, the Lord has used him so mightily, so greatly. He will be so much closer to the throne of Jesus than I will be in heaven. I doubt that I will ever lay eyes on him. But is that the reason you go to church? So that a communicator can communicate to you? Did you go to North Point so that you could hear great music? Did you go to 12 stones so you could hear? What is it? Why did you come? What did you come out to see? If what you're hoping for is something on the surface so that you can feel a little bit better, and I mention those churches specifically because I'm fans of them, because I think God uses them greatly and mightily, and I praise God for them. But are you showing up to see a show here or anywhere else? That's not what your soul is longing for. Your soul is longing to hear from this, to speak to you about what it is that he has to say. 
Every summer I get the opportunity to work with some college students. There's some Camp All-American staff that come abroad, and I get a chance to ask them about this. And Several years ago I heard Randy from this stage right here mention five things to look for in a church, and this is where I want to close our time. Just very briefly give you five things to look for in a church. If you're a college student home here, go back and put this into practice. If you're from another city, go back and put this into practice and understand that you may not be in an area where all five of these may be possible in one specific church. Look for as many of these as you can. Give these five that uh, Randy gave years ago. Number one, look for a passion for God's glory. Look for a church that has a passion for God's name and fame to be exalted and lifted high. When the desire is there for God to be exalted, God shows up. He overcomes a whole multitude of our sins. And he overcomes a whole bunch of a lack of talent. And he shows up when people desire to have him lifted up. Look for a church that has solid theological preaching and teaching. That has a rich, historic, theological approach towards its preaching and teaching. It doesn't mean that it has to be the same in every particular venue or offertory that they have, meaning um, it doesn't have to come, um, they may provide it in other venues. In other words, it may happen in a small group, et cetera. Make sure that this church is teaching rich, historic, theological truth. Look for a church that is committed to disciple-making and disciple-training. Disciple-making is when we take those, the good news of what Christ has done to a lost world who is, would consider themselves to be outside of the faith and we share this good news of Jesus with them. They embrace it by throwing their hands up in the air and they become Christians in the process. And at that point, the worst thing that we could do is just simply to leave them alone and say, well, there you go, you just, you just grow. Disciple training is when we come alongside of them and show them how to grow, show them how to become self-feeders. Look for a church that is involved in both disciple making and also disciple training. Fourthly, look for a church that has service to the community, that chooses to reach out to the community around them and particularly in areas of justice and mercy. This church may not be in an area where it is as easily accomplished as others. When you get into churches that are in cities, it seems to be a little bit easier to do this. Churches that are located in more affluent areas, it's a little more difficult, but look for a church that is making the effort to do that. If the church is not making the effort to do that, Bad job. And then finally, look for a church that practices church discipline. That takes serious obedience to King Jesus. Not abusive, just holding people accountable in the process. In your spiritual pilgrimage, what did you come out to see? What are your expectations? If you will place your hope in a person, and that person is Jesus rather than an outcome, then in 2016, I promise you, your faith will grow. But if you choose to remain in a childish manner, your faith will not grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for what it is that you have done on our behalf. Thank you for the life, Jesus, that you lived that you not only died the death that we needed you to die, but you also lived the life that we needed you to live. So thank you for taking the punishment and also for giving us your righteousness. Father God, I pray that you would grow us 
that you would help us to place our faith in Jesus, that you would mature us, and that our expectations would simply fall in line with what it is that you have given us. We love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.